Hello and welcome to Open School of Business. Today I have the honor to introduce you to Kimi Hirotsu Ziemski. Uh, she's been in uh, the field of project management uh, for a very long time and um, uh, she's also worked in marketing and sales uh, for um, a decades and uh, a lot of those things were projects. Um, so I would say that Kimi is uh, a, an inspiring project management professional for me specifically because uh, she is also an author of several books uh, on women in leadership and impact of culture on team productivity. Uh, also, she contributed to the fourth edition of Project Management Body of Knowledge. I think this is so significant to see a woman professional uh, making a career in project management, in marketing and sales, and also running several businesses of her own. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Kimi and start you off with um, asking you to tell us a little bit uh, about what keeps you busy these days and what's your main focus of the several companies that you have? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on because Anar, this is actually exactly the kind of thing that I'm focusing on. Trying to get the word out about what leadership-driven project management is all about because we started a video library it's called the Leadership Driven Project Management Initiative. And there's also a free Facebook uh, group called Leadership Driven Project Management Academy. And we've got hours and hours of education already posted as well as hours and hours still in production. So I'm keeping pretty busy, but you know, I'm also looking for folks to interview on leadership, uh, <clears throat> hint, hint, I would love to have you. I really, truly would. So um, I may be sending you a quick invitation to consider being interviewed. Oh, thank you so much. I think uh, it is really timely uh, because here in Washington, D.C., we're also opening up a group uh, called United in Leadership. And it is also about the leadership aspect of project management um, and we do want to focus on women to start because I think that women sometimes are the ones that are held back and uh, held back from uh, a very broad perspective rather than just, you know, a, a very direct one, I would say. Uh, so I think today I would like to pick your brain about um, the challenges you faced in your business and in your uh, career early on and how you, you, uh, you know, came, came um, to conquer them and to be successful today. Well, some of them I'm not entirely sure I actually conquered. I'll be honest about that. Like many women, I started out in a much lower level in the organization than I would have liked to. And something that I learned, it's simple math. 
if you start out lower in the organization than you would like to, which means you also start out at a lower pay rate, that means that you are going to be kept at that lower level than your colleagues or your peers for the rest of your career with that firm. And it's probably one of the most bitter lessons to learn is that it's simple math. Most organizations have a policy about how much they will raise your salary at any point in given time. And that can hold you back tremendously. So at some point I realized I didn't think that anybody meant to be treating me unfairly. I like to believe that people are not that nasty or mean. But I did believe that I could probably be more fairly treated if I went out on my own based on what was going on. And I literally did have a few people tell me, oh, yes, that's true. You are paid at the lower end of your salary scale, despite the fact that you're outperforming the other people. But, you know, it's our policy not to raise anybody's salary beyond X amount of percent. So I left and started my very first business on my own was called Energizing Enterprises. And I worked primarily with training professionals. And you know what? The thing is, they, they honestly felt, and I think this is something too many people still feel, that project management is dry and boring. And so trying to teach it means that, oh my God, I'm asking my people to sit in classrooms that are going to be dry and boring. And that's not the way that I facilitate either workshops or keynotes. And I brought together a team of people who believe that also. Now, here's the really weird thing. We were really good at what we did. And we had practical expertise. These are people who did project management and were still doing project management. And we could teach in a very interactive, sometimes humorous, sometimes, you know, oh my God, but always, always, always applicable. We had passion for what we were doing, and I thought, that's terrific. We are going to conquer the project management world, I'll have you know. Well, the thing is, that wasn't true. Because just because we were really good and we knew what we could accomplish for teams didn't necessarily mean that people were going to just hire us. So... If the thing is, not only do you have to get the word out, you need to remember who your message is for. You need to remember how is the way that you're going to serve them, how's it going to benefit them? Because it's not always intuitive. And keep in mind, um, terrible as it may seem, not all of them are going to agree with you. But mostly, right. don't let that stop you. Don't ever let it stop you. So uh, what were the strategies that you used uh, in the beginning to persuade people to buy these courses from you and your team? Find out where their pain points were. I would listen to them about what's going on in their firms or in their teams about things that weren't working quite the way they wanted to. I would offer uh, to give brown bags for free. So it, brown bag is a lunchtime 
quick tutorial about one topic. Deep dive into it. Everybody brought their own lunch, so I didn't have to cater it. And they were going to have to eat anyway. And frequently, they were going to be talking about work anyway. So this was just a way of introducing them to the ideas. And when you hear about what kinds of problems they are having, and you can help them solve it, then your next task is to ask them, how badly is this hurting the organization? And when the manager looks at you as if they really don't want to tell you how badly it's hurting the organization, you have a wonderful opportunity to help them solve the problem. And uh, it's amazing uh, how you're painting this picture and telling us a story. And I really love the way how your voice differs from one moment to another. So I can really feel that your facilitation and your skills as a trainer are, are really incredible. So that's definitely the selling point. Uh, what other secrets or philosophies do you have that help you to serve your customers better and uh, also to uh, sell more uh, and motivate your team and become bigger, grow as a company? Well, first of all, thank you for such kind words. I had the benefit of having some amazing teachers in marketing and sales. And I still, to this day, am a little bit worried that at any given point in the day, I may disappoint them by forgetting something fundamental. And I'm sure that I do. And I'm sure on occasion that I will do something and then go back, rethink it and think, good Lord, what were you thinking? Because that's one of the biggest issues. We don't always want to face it. But one of the biggest challenges that many of us face is internal. It's our own ego. We think that because we care so deeply and because we are smart and we are good at what we do, that that automatically means that everybody believes us. Well, that's not necessarily true. And sometimes the most difficult thing to remember is that it's not what you can do for them that's so important. It's what they will allow you. They will invite you to do for them that is going to be the open doorway. You can't kick it down just because you're really good. You can't kick it down just because you care deeply. You have to give them the chance to see why it's important to them that you care deeply, that your people will bust their bottoms to help them solve these problems. And keep in mind, very few people like to be shown up as incompetent or stupid. And at first glance, sometimes it feels that way for folks when project management consultants or trainers come in the door. What do you mean? I've been doing this thing for 15, 20 years or, you know, even longer, good knows. I've been doing just fine without this training stuff. Yes, you have. And I tell people, you absolutely have done some amazing things. But wouldn't it be great? 
if all of your colleagues actually operated at the same level. If we could bring everybody's performance level to a higher level of productivity, then the organization as a whole would absolutely benefit. But also, wouldn't it be more fun at work if you didn't constantly feel like you had to carry the major part of the load? If you were more colleagues and peers than people I have to rescue you know, sometimes from themselves. So we just want to create a leveling where everybody is speaking the same language, where everybody's understanding the same kinds of processes. And that doesn't matter whether or not it's Agile or Lean or Six Sigma or Waterfall or anything else that anybody comes up with. It means that we have a common mindset and a common set of tools that we're going to go and succeed together with, as opposed to somebody going off in that direction, somebody going off in that direction. And that's what happens when there isn't a really cohesive way of approaching things, including project management. I mean, let's face it, Anar, you and I both know a lot of people got into this business completely accidentally. They didn't even know that they were project managers because they had other little titles. And that's probably one of the areas that many of our colleagues who are women have had to deal with. We didn't even know we were project managers. And uh, that's why it's so important to have uh, the strategy and an agreed framework for the organization as a whole and especially for the senior management to really be trained in project management too, because sometimes they say, oh, here are my project managers. You know, you could go ahead and give them training in this and whatever. Uh, but there's so much responsibility that has to, like there, there's so many things that have to happen on the senior management level uh, and sometimes people don't see that, that they also need to take that training or maybe a different version of a similar training, <laughs> but they have to speak the same language. I absolutely agree with that. And well, it's amazing. can I ask you a question? Yeah. Have you ever gotten the feeling that your project sponsor wasn't disappointing you because they were stupid or they didn't care? But all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, nobody's ever actually explained to them what their responsibilities are as a project sponsor, because there are a lot of folks who get trained in project management, but there aren't a lot of folks who get trained as project sponsors who have their yes, responsibilities exactly. laid out for them in a simple, straightforward manner that says, here, here's what we need from you. Here's what we're looking for from you. And I find it kind of interesting because at the project management level, there's a lot of parity between men and women in terms of how many men, how many women. As a matter of fact, project management at, at the project management level is probably one of the most equally set levels of population. However, when you get further and further up, you'll notice that that's not necessarily the case anymore. That, that's so true. And uh, we had discussions about uh, women and their career with uh, many of our speakers on Open School of Business. 
And I would like to take um, time and, and ask your opinion about uh, things that hold back women from advancing and how these issues can be addressed in the corporate level. Like, let's say as an entrepreneur, uh, you have more opportunities, but in a, in a corporate setting, what do you think can be done? Well, first of all, I think that one of the things that's, that holds us back at a huge level, and it's not just at the corporate level, it also is endemic in our whole society, is the impression that this is a women's issue. It's not a women's issue. It's much bigger than that. It's an issue for the future well-being and, frankly, the health of our entire world. Now, when we as a people, as a world community, keep doing what we've been doing, well, that's how we've ended up where we are. Now, if you're satisfied with the status quo, are you? Well, if not, you can actually start by beginning to educate convincing men and women that the problem is bigger than a gender divide. Until you can convince them that it's bigger than a gender divide, it is something that focuses on the benefit of the entire world, you cannot then take action. And we need to take assertive action to move things forward together as the biggest team that we can, men and women. So now, the thing is, some people, if you're perfectly okay with the status quo, the way it is right now, and you're not willing to take that effort to educate both men and women about how this, this issue affects the entire world, then pardon my language, but get the hell out of the way. Because there are those of us who will accept that challenge and we need to stand for what we believe is the right thing to do, not just for ourselves, but honestly, is this what you want to leave for future generations? I don't. This isn't good enough. Not in my opinion. And I believe there are a lot of people who, when they see that this is not just a, quote, woman's issue, it is an issue that affects the well-being of the entire world and all of the future generations, assuming, of course, there will be any. I agree. The thing is, though, I think when you're on the other side of the gender spectrum, then you don't really see a big problem. And uh, I think uh, it'd be great for us to explain how is it actually affecting the well-being of the whole population. Well, if you look at some of the changes that have occurred socially, you'll notice that there are a lot of people who are getting educated, quite frankly, against their will. They didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Or they'd always been encouraged that this was okay. It wasn't that big a deal. And now they're burning up time, energy, and frankly, I suspect parts of their soul, trying to defend something that in their heart of hearts they kind of didn't believe it was okay even when they did it. But they're certainly not going to say so now. And instead of doing 
all the millions of things that could be productive for the benefit and the welfare of people in general, their own organizations largely. Ah, forgive me. That was to remind me to get back with you. I live by alarms. I seriously live by alarms. It is truly pathetic. But it's also the way that I I control my impulse to go off onto a tangent. Um, But to return, there there are shifts in perspective that are allowing people to see some differences now between what they believe to be their right, what they believe to be perfectly okay, or one of my least favorite comments, oh my God, you are so overblowing this. No, I'm not you're underplaying it. I think for many people, one of the big aha moments comes when they become parents and they are forced to face the potential of the limitations that their female children are now faced with and going to have to encounter. And all of a sudden, that's not good enough for their daughter. Well, guess what? It wasn't good enough for the daughters of our parents either. And that becomes a whole groundswell of talking about it. Uh, With the pandemic, with lockdowns going back and forth, and now online education, a lot of people are exhausted. And uh, uh, especially business owners because of the financial burden that the pandemic is bringing. And that, that's the next question. Like when you started up, there are a lot of people in our audience that are looking to start a business. And even though it might not be the best time right now, I am very certain then that in a year or two, it will be a very good time to start a business. What uh, are your tips in terms of starting it? Like when you left your company, did you have to worry about how much finances you had to bring in a team uh, or were the other kind of recipes that you think would work for people? It was a very old fashioned recipe on It was my late husband and I had a philosophy where we would never make a purchase of more than a hundred dollars without at least, at least 50% of it, in our hands. That and the fact that we had for years and years and years always had at least six months of our living expenses in reserve. So when I left that company with that nice safe package of benefits and a pension and a steady paycheck, I did have a very straightforward limitation. I had six months to make this thing work. And if it didn't, I had to make very different decisions. We all have a runway. That's what we called it in those days, a runway. How far out do you have enough resources? Do you have the time to be able to do this, to be able to try this new idea? So in this time, cash is king. I'll be honest, cash is king. Don't put yourself in a position of having to rely entirely on a 
business that you are starting, but use the gift of the time frame that we have between when it's dreadful to start a new business and when it would be a wonderful time to start the new business. Use that time frame to build your infrastructure, to start your plans, to get the expertise um, and the wisdom of mentors in the area, to really investigate, is there an audience for what I am trying to bring to the table? You start a business, generally you have something to offer. Well, do the people you'd like to offer it to actually know that there is a benefit there? Are they hungry for it? Just because we can do something marvelous doesn't mean there's a market for it. And I'll be very, very transparent here. I'm a pretty damn good singer. Do you have any idea how many pretty damn good singers there are out there? Who are not singing for a living because there is only so much of a market and at some point in time every single one of us had to say okay you know what I have to decide am I willing to not be able to pay my bills on a regular basis to keep borrowing from everybody I know to keep lousy hours to sing in smoky bars where I'm pretty sure that the air is really bad for me, to not see my friends because they're all working day jobs and I'm working a night job and there you go. Is there a market for what I'm bringing to the table? And at some point in time, you have to make the decision about whether or not there is or there isn't, or you're willing to push more of your sweat and more of your commitment to chase that dream. It turns out though, all those years of theater and all those years of training ended up being pretty handy. I use my voice now, but not necessarily for singing. I use it to try to bring a more powerful message to women who are looking at technology saying, okay, let me get this straight. I'm either a programmer, I'm the CEO, but there doesn't seem to be a lot in between for us women, what? What am I supposed to do now? You don't give up. You try really hard and you make judgment calls every day about whether or not it is still something that you are capable of giving your fire and your commitment to. Because there are going to be times when it's pretty thankless. And R and I have both lived through projects where we think to ourselves seriously, oh my God, seriously? And we've all had teams where we thought, okay, do I really, really, oh, this is not going to be one of my favorite days of the week. You know, I mean, we, we all do. <laughs> you have to yeah. decide every day, am I willing to put that energy forth? Am I willing to put that commitment forth? So okay. nothing that you can do is ever wasted but you may have to make some choices that aren't so obvious at the time. Yeah, that's an incredible example because I wasn't, I didn't want to interrupt you to ask you if it was an example 
or if you are a really singer <laughs> and then they realize that you are really a singer <laughs> and it's incredible because i sing too i write songs <laughs> and you this know, microphone i, I bought for that purpose in the beginning but you know this is something i do on my own time when i'm not busy doing my career and work so this is amazing well i'm glad really because let me just ask you, is there any reason to doubt that being the whole person that you are has not been part of what's made you powerful as a woman professional? Definitely, yes. I think it definitely helps to have the whole personality and uh, being a speaker, being a presenter and a trainer is like performing the same oh, with podcast is very similar but also you have to know your material so it's a little bit more preparation <laughs> well um you don't have to be a flamingo dancer or um, you know somebody who dies of heartbreak to be able to sing La Traviata or Camille, but, um, and you don't have to be somebody who worked the railroad to be able to sing songs of heartbreak on the road. But if you're going to do something like project management, you best know what you're talking about. And that's why I would, I love seeing other women come into the field of being a professional speaker in the area of project management. There aren't a lot of us. There are a lot of leadership speakers, but there are not a lot of project management, project leadership speakers who are women. So come on in. The water is fine. And by the way, I would blessedly, I would be absolutely blessed to welcome you into competition because the more there are of us the harder it's going to be to ignore us <laughs> yes i think it's amazing because i i love going to pmi symposiums especially when they were alive like face to face um <laughs> and i would love to you know participate in more uh, and also present in in the future in more of those um and I love going to the uh, PMI chapter events uh, and I presented in the PMI chapter events locally here, Washington DC area, Silver Spring. Um, but I, I, I still aspire to go uh, and speak at the PMI national symposiums and stuff like that. So that would be wonderful for me. The global uh, congresses. Right, yeah. And then they have this uh, training days afterwards i wonder have you have you taught in in those courses uh and i know well, you've been contributed to the fourth edition of pinbok uh so i'm generally very curious about your collaboration and involvement with pmi well sometimes it's like being cousins we were we are in the same family but we're not always on the same speaking terms and we have our disagreements i think that's part of one of the strengths 
of an organization like Project Management Institute that encompasses so much of the globe is that they have absolutely, they have their own views on things. And they also have learned that there are other places, other views that are just as powerful. So I served as a volunteer leader in the San Francisco Bay Area chapter for a number of years in a number of different board capacities. And as a result, I actually did do a number of seminars of all around the world for the leadership teams of the project management chapters. They would generally have a whole section of time that was put aside prior to the global congresses. And it was wonderful. It was great because if you can work with the leadership teams, you can help their entire chapter to move forward, to do things differently, to think of things in a way that uses not just what they already know and what they already do, but gives them an even broader perspective about how it can be used. So I think that that's a very powerful venue. There are also though a lot of people who have project management skills who are not yet part of the project management professional community, but they're very good at what they do. There's a lot of cross-pollination, for example, ISACA. And I just violated one of the rules I teach people all the time. If you use an acronym, please be able to explain what it means. And I cannot for the life of me remember. Um, but it is an association, an institute, if you will, that is primarily concerned with cybersecurity. And do you know that a lot of their members are also project managers. A lot of them are also PMPs. Right. So project management, I believe, is a competency, not just a profession. And that's where sometimes I think the mothership in Pennsylvania, and I don't <laughs> always agree. I see. Yeah, but then it's more democratic. Anyone who is doing their life well, are probably great project managers. <laughs> they just don't really use the categories and, and say the exactly. same things. And exactly. a lot of PMPs who are certified and everything are not necessarily delivering like they should be or they could be. And those are again tied up to the leadership skills, to the skills that people hone and practice and, and really improve many years, many decades to really become professional in it and, and, and really be convicted. Like sometimes you see leaders that have been in it for many years and they're still working on it because there are different facets that come up and, and things change. So um, I know that you've uh, published two books uh, on on leadership matters, and uh, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about the books and your journey as an author. So it's going to be such a threefold question, and the third <laughs> one finally: Are there any changes that you think now that 
you know, so many years passed from some of them, like you want to say, oh, I actually think this is different now. Well, I, I do think that I've become a better writer, so I'm a little bit less of a poor representation of the perspective. <laughs> um, there are, there's this fallacy that if you're going to be concerned with women in leadership, you should only talk to women in leadership. And I firmly disagree with that. I think you should talk to anybody who is willing to talk with you about the topic. And so in my first book, um, When Opposites Collide, Leadership Beyond Gender, I interviewed men who led, who led in a way that was much more enlightened than some of their competition or some of their other, the other firms in their industry. And I asked them, what is it that you see is important about promoting women in leadership? And what is it that you think is stopping us? And I asked the women that I interviewed the exact same questions. And I said, give me three things, give me three steps that you would advocate anybody take if they want to further their career in leadership. And then fast forward over a decade later, I wrote another book about women in technology leadership, specifically in women in technology leadership. And again, I spoke with men who have led from an enlightened perspective and I asked them the same question. What is it that you believe is standing in the way of women? What is it that stands in the way of you doing even more? What is it that stood in the way of the first thing you tried to do in support of women in leadership? And we need to remember this really is the community. So I think that that's particularly important. Um, good Lord, I forgot the second question. I am so sorry. <laughs> Not a problem. I wanted to ask about your journey as an author. Basically, oh. uh, you know, it's not that easy to just go and write a book and publish it and everything. So, Well, in today's environment, it's a lot easier to publish. And you are absolutely right, Inar. It is still not easy to write. I think it's going to be a journey, just like you had mentioned for leaders who are still studying and still looking for improvement in their skill sets. Being a writer, I'm still working on it. I hope to be working on it for ages and ages and ages. And in fact, I am currently planning a writing retreat so that I can completely rewrite and reintroduce the book on the impact of culture on team productivity. Because I've learned so much from my students and my clients about how to perhaps more powerfully get that message across that I want to make sure that I make it available and get that message across. So publishing is not nearly as difficult unless you have your heart set on an established publishing house like Random or Wiley or something like that. But you can do your own imprint and you can, you can self-publish. 
the good news is that means that you can publish on your timetable. The bad news is that it means that you will publish, you will publish on your timetable. So there's nobody who's going to be standing over you saying, uh, excuse me, Anar, but weren't you supposed to deliver three chapters by the end of last month? Hmm. Okay. There's nobody there saying, Kimi, seriously, you've only done 15 pages this week? Really? Hmm. What else have you been doing? There's nobody that's going to hold you accountable except, as usual, us. Project plan. <laughs> Exactly. So you do, you have to put, you have to structure out writing a book as any other project and you have to really hew to it. Right. And also the marketing and distribution, maybe for you, it's not as difficult because you are a marketing professional. So if you were to give marketing it's advice hard. to self-publishing authors, what would you say? What, what to start? Well, for one thing, I didn't think of my book as just a book. I thought of it more as a six by nine business card. It was a way of getting people introduced to some of the ideas. And it, it wasn't something that I wrote because I thought that I would become a millionaire selling books. And by the way, if that's what you think you're going to do, please, 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 please sit down, take a deep breath. And ask yourself, in the mirror, do I look like Patricia Cornwall or Agatha Christie or Tom Peters? And if you don't, be very clear about this. There are thousands, if not millions, of perfectly, wonderfully written books in business that are not making their authors but a couple of thousand dollars a year. But what they are doing is getting their author's message out there, getting a little bit of interest around it, and creating a little bit of a buzz for the author and the other things that they can say, the other ways that they can convey the message that is so important to them. I'm not saying don't write a book. I'm saying be very clear about what your expectations are and whether or not, in fact, you're going into this with both eyes, both ears, and your entire brain wide open. That's great. You need to be and realistic. That's true. Yeah. And, and I want to take time to thank you to invest into this topic of women in leadership. Because you're investing not only in your own brand and your company you're investing into this whole population of girls young girls and women uh, who aspire to to lead who aspire to do something great with their lives and uh, while we are on this topic of books I want uh, to be curious and ask you what are the books uh, uh, that had an impact on your thinking and then your life philosophies well, there are two books in particular that I go back to a lot, and one of them may actually surprise you. Um, Shakespeare's Complete Works. I've been reading Shakespeare since my aunt gave me this wonderful book 
called Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb. And I was about nine years old, and it was a pastor and his sister who had taken the most popular plays from Shakespeare and turned them into stories instead. And I fell in love with the idea that you could make whole personalities out of nothing but your imagination and your heart. And I go back to that sometimes we forget just how richly imbued with multiple facets, the people that we deal with all around us all the time, sometimes we forget just how multidimensional they are. And oddly enough, now that we're seeing our, each other so often during things like Zooms and Adobe Connect and et cetera, and Microsoft Teams, et cetera, it actually almost makes it too easy to only see one side of that individual. And I never want to lose that sense of how multifaceted they are. Even if I don't know what all those facets are, I don't want to forget that they're there. Um, but also the Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. They're, they're very wise, those Four Agreements. They're very kind. And they're very practical. They pertain to your everyday life, not some far off nirvana, not some far off moment of enlightenment or heaven. It's something that you can do that is wise and kind to both yourself and everybody around you right now. And so I go back to that. As a matter of fact, I think I'm on my third version, third book, because I keep dog-earing it and writing notes to myself in it. So it is one of the books that I, I have as a book. And I go back to it fairly often. Yeah, yeah that's wonderful. Uh, I think the stories and this multifacetedness of people is so important right now. Because like you said, of, of, of all this online life that we have, it's so important to see that there so many other areas of life that people are living and that may not be showing, but still they have uh, impact on what is going on uh, and it's so important. They absolutely do. And it also reminds us when we remember that everyone around us is a human being with all those facets and all of those demands on their time and possible problems that we know nothing about, it not only makes them more human, it makes us perhaps a little more humane. Yeah, I love that. It's the compassionate leadership, servant leadership, um, those topics are really uh, special to my heart because I think leaders have such a great place to make an impact and almost in all of the workplaces they have authority and power uh, over making this workplace wonderful or actually making it toxic so it's really important that the leaders realize the whole responsibility they have uh, and, and really serve their responsibility well. 
Um, and I want to thank you for um, bringing in such enlightened conversation to Open School of Business today. Oh my goodness. Uh, and it's delightful. Thank you so much uh, for your time today, Kimmy. We definitely wish you success and good luck with all of your initiatives. And very excited to have you here and uh, in general in our community of project managers. And uh, very thankful for today's conversation. Thank you. I appreciate your time and I appreciate the invitation. It's always wonderful to speak with you.